have to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, and this is a team effort. 10-5, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. Hey, card sharps, and thanks to you all for downloading Scoring at the Movies, the every other Thursday podcast that gazes back at sports pictures. If we're good at gazing, you better believe we're good at spoiling. I'm the nuts-having New Yorker who thinks it's immoral to let a sucker keep his money, Ryan Ellis. And here's the very aggressive and best educated guesser I know, Mr. Son of Bitch with Chick Chick Chick, Christy Gregorio. Pay the man his money. <laughs> let crack the, um, a die of blood. Hang around, hanging around. Let the impressions begin. They've already begun. Oh, yeah, they're not going to stop either, I'm sure. Thank you, Ryan. And if I'm good at anything, it's gazing at your nuts. So first of all, folks, we probably mentioned this before, but this man is a card guy. He is very good at the game. I know something about it, but not that much. Most of what I know is from Rounders. I've watched this movie probably <laughs> ten times. And there's still things I don't get with some of the expressions they make. This is a very inside baseball kind of movie. It is, yeah. I'd, I will do my best to sort of restrain myself from too much pedantry in the course of this podcast because I don't know how good I am at cards, but I do really enjoy them, and nothing bothers me more in moviedom. Not necessarily Rounders, but in movies generally, they do... a. F- freaking awful job of actually recording poker and cards the way it actually is played the way it actually is okay. yeah because we said that major league me. did baseball well and angels in the outfield did not do baseball well right rounders does cards well but i don't know you name it most movies don't most movies most tv does a piss poor job of it before we get any further we gotta address your beer you said you're gonna have a different cider. Yes. well beer not cider right every time so what's this one well ryan in honor of Rounders being a card movie, and you're playing a session, right? When you play cards and you sit down, you're grinding it out, that's a session. So I chose a session ale, and in honor of Seven Card Stud, it's Session 7 from Side Launch. All right. It's a nice, easy-drinking beer. It's something to refresh you without dulling your senses at the poker table. Are there multiple sessions, so you could have had 8 or 10 or 20? No. It okay. just worked out this way. Another and I'm trying I... to shoehorn seven into, oh, okay. the, Fair. <laughs> into the meeting of All it. All right. Another thing I don't know <laughs> much about that you do, which is beer. Way to poke a hole in my bullshit. <laughs> Mr. Son of Bitch. Son of Bitch. I always assumed that that was just Malkovich being a little bit ridiculous. Mm-hmm. In his... We all did. Evidently, he had a Russian friend or something read the lines to him, and he just mimicked her accent. I read online that somebody said he sounds just like people, at least in New York, of Russian descent. Oh, that he makes sounds like sense, that. actually. Combine the New York... What do they call it? A New York brogue? Is that the term fair, for Fair, okay. That'd be more what? Irish, but okay, fair. Yeah. Anyway, the New York accent with a Russian-speaking English kind of accent, mm-hmm. and that's what you come away with. Then. Plus, it's a character. I get why people criticize it, even if it isn't right. If the people that say it's the right way to talk and they're wrong, who cares? It's fun. We're going to quote it for the next 45 minutes to an hour, and that's great. And he is a fun character at the end of the day. KGB mm-hmm. is an mm-hmm. awesome character. KGB, great name, too. Before we get any further into rounders, though, some Kingpin runs its nerves. Iowa, which is where Roy in Kingpin is from, has over 3 million people currently, probably not back in the mid-90s or the 70s when the movie's first set. But anyway, 3 million people now, and that's actually 150,000 more than Nevada. What? Yep. Nevada is not one of the more populous states, and Iowa is about somewhere in the middle. I know Vegas is the only city in Nevada worth anything. Reno has people, like we say. That's where Kingpin goes to. A little bit, but I would wager to guess that probably 80% of the state's population is Vegas, or at least the greater Vegas area. So where are the people in Iowa is what your question is going to be, right? 
Des Moines, for one. Well, one, how many people actually live in Vegas? I thought it was actually in the greater Vegas oh, area. I, didn't look I that thought up. it was more than three million people. I'm not doing that much research, Chris. <laughs> just the state. <laughs> I'll sit here quietly and drink my beer. <laughs> but I was just surprised to see that, so I thought I should mention that. North Dakota, we talked about in the Kingpin podcast as well, only has about 750,000 people. So that is one of the least populous states. That makes sense. Lynn Shea isn't just in her late 60s now, like I said in the podcast. She's 75 as of last month. And she was the actress that played the disgusting... Oh, 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 oh. The landlady. No name in the credits, just landlady. I'm just going to curl up into a fetal ball for a moment here, Ryan. <laughs> and the Farrelly's knew her before, Kingpin. I said that she went in and convinced them by playing the character the way yeah. that she played in the movie. She was in Dumb and Dumber. So what I read online cannot be true because they knew her. They cast her before. But did they recognize her? Well, that's possible, too. Because casting agents bring people into movies and sometimes they... Directors don't know who the hell they're working with and might forget a day later. So it's yeah. possible that's what it was. Maybe she was a day player in Dumb and Dumber. In a role we would know? Or was it I just don't like... remember. Okay. <laughs> I meant to watch Dumb and Dumber because I haven't seen it in a long time. And we talked so much about it and praised it so much. But I didn't. All right, that's the kingpin. Runs, hits, and errors. Or strikes and gutters and... Strikes, gutters, splits? Okay, fair. There Good. we go. So back to Rounders, which was released by Miramax on 9-11, 1998. Three years before the big day. Jeez. It was not a hit, although it did find a strong life on home video, especially once Texas Hold'em was on TV, especially on Sportsnet or TSN or both up here in Canada, constantly. Yep. I watched a lot of it, and even I got sick of it, and I loved watching it for a while there because we were all into cards. I think Rounders is one of the big reasons why we were. You watched poker tournaments on television? Not for hours, but for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Really? Yep. I struggle to watch any sport on television, maybe with the exception of football, and even though I don't watch a lot of football that I haven't played even recreationally enough to really have a feeling for how difficult things are. And golf, I hated watching until I became a golfer, and now I appreciate the skill it takes. Baseball, we both play recreationally to varying degrees. I think we can appreciate how difficult it is to do some of those things. Before I got into cards myself, I would come across this on television periodically, and I would land on it for about 30 seconds, and I couldn't watch it beyond that. I didn't understand any of the strategy. I didn't understand what people were purportedly thinking about their betting. So it was like the most dry, absolute boring. Had you seen Rounders? Because maybe that's why. I think that is why. Probably not. Felt like I got it. Well, they do a reasonably good job for a movie that is just trying to very quickly introduce you to some basic poker-related stuff. Mm. They do a pretty good job of throwing out some terms and helping you understand what's going on at the table. So I can understand seeing the movie and the discussion about the main event, watching Eric Seidel and Johnny Chan and getting a little bit pumped up about that, particularly as time went on and the prize for the main event got to a million dollars and more, which it hadn't by, obviously, the 80s when Johnny Chan was playing. This movie is pretty inside baseball, though, and I think even after my what might be my 10th viewing, I don't fully get what they're talking about, which is fine. I think that's okay. I like the movie doesn't do the Johnny the Explainer thing to us, even though a lot of people might say that it does. I've read that professional poker players who've made millions of dollars love this movie but also can pick it apart which i guess oh. is fair of movies we've covered too we've covered movies we've enjoyed a lot but we could pick it apart to death i could certainly do that with the rocky movies which we eventually will cover one of them one day and we're going to mock it more than we're going to praise it but i still love them despite their very many flaws if they tried to make a movie that was true enough to life and explained enough so that everybody could understand all the time what was going on dull as fuck it right? would be it'd be unwatchable even for us poker fans Okay, well, let's get the nutshell out of the way and some numbers before we get deeper into the conversation. So the nutshell, ex-legal scholar pays off debt to Oreo enthusiast. I finally spotted KGB's tell. But why did you not notice that tell sooner? When you're so good at this game, supposedly, Mike McDermott, Matt Damon. Probably the most grievous plot hole in the whole thing is 
that the tell is as obvious as it is, right? Although, I guess at this point, he had played KGB once before, right? He might have played him other times and they didn't mention it, but he only plays him twice in the movie. Anyway, my impression of it, when he first rolls into KGB's joint and asks for three stacks of high society and they play that first game that cleans him out, I got the impression that KGB only played those high limit games that Mike usually did. Oh, and didn't. Mike couldn't have played it before, so yes, that'd be their first. And this is the only way I could forgive the tell thing, honestly, is you only played him once. Maybe in the course of that first game, he only picks up the cookie one time. and that's, the One time they show it. It's yeah. not really enough to really say, okay, that's your tell then. When you pick it up and you eat it, that's one thing. When you put it back down, that's another. Like You have to have a little bit of a track record to put two and two together in order for that to make sense. Yeah, so let's explain this because maybe people that like the movie don't necessarily even know for sure. My third or fourth viewing, I maybe would have necessarily known for sure. So when he picks up the cookie and listens to it, which I guess he always listens to it, but when he eats it, that means he's got something. And if he doesn't eat it, that means he does. Or doesn't? Yeah, I got that wrong. Anyway. In both circumstances, he picks up an Oreo into the rack next to him. He splits it open, right? Listens to it. And then when he's got a strong hand, he'll eat the two halves of the cookie. But when he's got nothing, he'll put the cookie back together. Take it down. Yeah, and he'll put it in the the first round or whatever you call it, the first hand of the last game. Take it down. I can't do the accent. I'm terrible. Well, that's going to be the fun part about the movie. All right, so Rotten Tomatoes number, 65% of critics, only 65, but 87% of audiences. So great example, the movie found life in home video because people like me who didn't know anything about the game and didn't know anything about this movie for that matter, loved it and enjoyed it despite the fact we were lost sometimes. I'm actually a little surprised that that critics number is that low. I wonder what they ripped it for. Maybe believability, although you wouldn't think most movie critics would know much about poker either. But then I bet a lot of them compared it to The Cincinnati Kid, a movie in the 60s. A lot of people point to as the card movie. Maybe not so much now, but they did. I've seen Cincinnati Kid. It's a lot of fun. But even for the type of poker it portrays, it's not realistic. I believe you. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Rounders was 80th at the 1998 U.S. box office. Saving Private Ryan, also starring Matt Damon, was number one. Bev and I covered that quite a long time ago for the top 100 project. As the eponymous Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. Matt Damon's had a great career. I mean, we all know who this guy is. Good Will Hunting was the year before rounders and saving private ryan he's been in the Bourne movies so many other ones it's a strong performance and edward norton i think is maybe even better having fun for once not a guy who's had a lot of fun in his movies was really good in fight club the year after this in fact and of course was the hulk he seems to have been blackballed in the business ever since what do you think of the two main characters are they good i think they're great together really oh yeah i think their chemistry is great and i've loved both of them through their respective careers and i was just going to throw out there that in damon's illustrious career i think the pinnacle has got to be his role in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back while filming the sequel to uh, <laughs> Good Will Hunting, <laughs> Applesauce Bitch, that whole thing. <laughs> so I think we can both agree that is the peak of his career. Every time I watch this movie, I start out enjoying Norton's performance, and by the end of the movie, I hate his character. I think you're supposed to. Which you're supposed to, exactly. And Damon does a great job of sort of going through that same arc. He starts out good friends with Worm and their bosom buddies and then by the end of the movie you can't stand the sight of him. I love that Worm says at one point, I'm not a leech, but he's always leeching <laughs> off a mic. No, he's not a leech, he's a worm. He just wanted to be a leech in the sense of you pay my debts off, although Jesus Christ, then you wouldn't owe money to all these bad guys. But then, as Hitchcock would have said, then there'd be no movie. But he should have let him pay his debts off because it wasn't so much money back then. And Worm was doing a stretch, not for Mike, but Mike wasn't in jail in addition to Worm because Worm was covering for him. This is what I was a little confused by. That whole story about how Mike and Worm really became close was when Worm sacrificed himself on Mike's behalf, right? And that's when he got expelled and Mike continued and graduated, Mm -hmm. when Worm got expelled. But Worm was not in jail for that, and he was not in jail for the fixing of the game, right? He was in jail because he was doing some sort of fraudulent credit card scam. Was that that what it was? Oh, okay. 
I wasn't entirely sure, to be honest. So maybe Mike wasn't involved in that, okay. I don't think he was. Later on in the movie, once they start having a bit of their falling out, and Mike's ripping into Worm, he's asking him, so what are you going to do now? Are you going to go back to scamming credit cards, blah, blah, blah? And then Worm goes, well, you know, I wasn't actually copying them, I was selling them, or something like that. He was making his usual excuses. Because I never really understood how you could go away as long as Worm did for something like buying off the starting five of a really low tier... (laughs) Right. collegiate team or something like that made no sense so i think it has to be that credit card thing in which case mike wouldn't be involved but mike owes him from before because mike wouldn't have graduated from school and then got into law school had right. it been for the fact that worm took the heat for that unquestionably mike owed worm a debt but is it forever yeah and that's the question that you're left with in this movie how much do you owe a friend who does one potentially really selfless thing and by the end of the movie i think you're left questioning too why did worm do this was it out of loyalty or did he just think that there was no sense in bringing Mike down with him. Maybe Worm didn't have any interest in graduating anyway. He always knew yeah. he was going to be a scammer, so fuck school, I'm going to leave anyway. Or maybe he had a code, it could be that. I'm not going to rat to the police. I'm sure, as you've watched and discussed with Bev, various movies that have to do with the mafia or crime, like everyone's got a certain code. That's true of these underground gamblers. That's true of the poker world. That's true of everybody. We all have our own code, and maybe that was Worm's. But that's a question you'd love to ask. How far is too far to go for a friend that is really a bad person and a bad friend but did one great thing? Mm-hmm. And doesn't tell you the truth when he gets out of jail because he finally owns up about midway through the movie, probably more than that actually, that he owes money to KGB because Grandma is under KGB's umbrella, whatever the hell they yeah. call it. And if he just told Mike that in the first place, then maybe that could have been dealt with better as well. When Mike is trying to be a little too honorable, he probably should let Worm help him crack the game illegally so they could get the money quickly and then worry about being on the up and up. But then again, you need the drama. Correct me, I haven't seen this movie quite as often as you have, I don't think. But you said you saw it three times in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, but I still don't think I've hit the 10 viewings okay. total. At what point does Mike talk about Worm not being able to judge the room, right? Determine how far is too far. He has that line early on that you can shear a sheep many times, but you can skin him only once. And I think that's part of the reason why he doesn't want him to run the games crooked is because not only will you blackball yourself for life, because at that point Mike presumably doesn't care about the future in cards, he's still nominally thinking about completing his law degree, but maybe he realizes that Worm can't control himself and he's going to get them in trouble by doing something so unbelievable as far as like the run of cards goes that they're going to get themselves fucked up. The way he is being a mechanic with, what do they call, Roman and Maurice, the Russians, in yeah. the Chesterfield Club is probably the answer to that question, I would say. Exactly. And yeah. then, of course, when he finds out that he's, what is it, eight or $7,000 in Hawk and then he throws his glass across the room. Great scene, by the way. Famke Jansen. Oh, my God. She was at her peak at this point. Looks wise. Oh, Famke, man. Yeah. When, but, when did Goldeneye come out? Three years before. Three years before, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this was peak Famke. And then X-Men was a couple years later. Yeah. She's a pretty good actress, but, man, she is such a sexy woman. How does this man resist her? Because his girlfriend has left him. And, by the way, that's one of the nice touches in this movie from a character standpoint. Joe is a scold. It's hard to like her in some ways. Gretchen Maul was the it girl around this time for about eight months, it seemed, or maybe even less. Everyone thought she was going to be the thing, and she really wasn't. She's been in movies since, but nothing all that huge. But she does have her point proven for her when she does leave him within minutes when he goes in there. I fucking knew it. Let's go play some cards. So I'm leaving you because you can't control your gambling addiction, which he does have. Let's get to that in a second. But he proves her point immediately. It's not even the next day or next week. All right, there you go. You play cards, so you are gambling. Do you agree with me and not with him? That he's gambling. This whole thing of, why do the same four guys get to the last table of World Series poker every year? They're just lucky? That's not the point. He can say, well, like he says in the judges game, we know what we're holding, we know what you're holding. You don't know what the judges are holding. Yes, he's right that time. He's brilliant at this game. He's yeah. better at this than I ever could be and probably better than you ever could be either. But this notion that he's 
certain of it. It's like being a baseball player, Barry Bonds, saying, I will hit a home run. The greatest baseball player of all time, Babe Ruth, Barry Bonds, whoever, didn't hit that many home runs. So you're not that brilliant to this game you think you are to be perfect all the time. So this notion that he's not a gambler is bullshit. Comment. <laughs> your turn. <laughs> Defend your position, Chris. <laughs> what? Yeah, this is a conversation. If you play cards at all, even at recreational level that I do, it's a conversation you're going to have with your friends at some point. There's unquestionably an element of luck and gambling involved, right? Because you can be the best player in the world and you can get all your money in as a huge favorite. And if the deck just runs out poorly for you, you can still lose. Right, so you know what the other guy has, but you've got three and a seven. Yeah. If the flop is 3-3-3, then I'm sorry, your aces are cracked and my 3-7 just won. So there's an element of gambling to it, but where it is not like roulette it's because it's not pure gambling the cards are not going to dictate entirely the result of the game if i have a great read on you and i know exactly how you behave there's a reasonable expectation that i could get you to fold the best hand in a lot of situations if i can sense that you're weak so when he says it's not gambling that's true and it's also not true that's why he fucks up so badly at the beginning and why john torturo's character reams him out for blowing his bankroll is that you never ever ever sit down at the table with your entire bankroll in front of you the gambling aspect of poker and i don't know what that ratio is by the way some pros will say it's like a 60 40 60 percent luck 40 percent gambling some people will say it's 80 20 if you're not very good i don't know where it lies there's some element of gambling and there's some element of skill involved in it but that's why you never sit down at the table with your entire bankroll because you can have one incredibly bad beat and you're busto right so there's all kinds of bankroll management courses you can take, but let's say you should never sit down with less than 100 buy-ins. If I'm playing you, Ryan, at $1, $2 games, you probably want to sit down with 100 big blinds, so sit down with $200 in front of you. Cash games, you might even want to sit down with more. You might want to sit down with 400 But that means my bankroll should be at a minimum probably $40,000. That's how much money I should have sitting in a safety deposit or in my mattress at home if I sit down with $400 in front of me at a poker table. And that's because over the long term, those skill elements, those minority hands where I get you to fold the best hand just because I got that mic read on you, that'll play out in my favor over the long run. And I think he even says the best players will win one big blind per hour in profit or something like that. Hmm. And that's true. That's and most people can't handle the swings. That's one of his lines. And his great voiceover, one of my favorite ever voiceover narrations. I always thought that line was important. Most people can't handle the swings. When I played with my friends years ago, we played quite a bit. I wasn't the best player of the four of us. I wouldn't say I even won the most. But I was always very complimented by the fact that my one friend said, I don't trust you, meaning he couldn't read me. I don't think I have a great poker face in life, necessarily. You're a stoic individual, right? But I could be, I think, in those games, exactly. <laughs> and maybe because I'd seen this movie, or maybe I just knew enough to not give it away. And not always play the same way. When they show the people in Atlantic City who do the finger over the mouth or they have nervous twitches, I have plenty of those just in life doing anything. You're both stoic and incredibly nervous looking all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Sweating I'm very profusely. schizophrenic. <laughs> I'm a face toucher in life, so I can see myself doing that kind of stuff in a poker game, but I think I would do it a little bit strategically. And the whole thing about if you have nothing, then you bet big and you act confident, and if you have something good, you lay low and you try to draw people in. I think I'd mix that up if I was sitting in Atlantic City. And also, kind of mm-hmm. like what you're saying, don't plan to win throw your $500 on the table and if you lose it then oh I had fun playing with these guys and by the way they all should have taken a bus down there together because as they say it's the Chesterfield South when Mike oh, and yeah. Worm first get there and they sit down at the table it's all their buddies including Fomka Johnson I forget her name now her name is Petra Petra yeah mm-hmm. oh you're right save the gas money 
we both like this movie. We didn't say this 20 minutes ago, but I'm a big fan of this movie for all of its flaws. I love oh, it. Yeah, I love it too. It's a lot of fun. You mentioned your tells and your face touching and all of yeah. that. One of the things I had never noticed before until I started watching the movie again for this podcast, the opening sequence where Mike's gathering all his money out of the various hiding spots in his apartment. I hadn't picked up on this before, but two of the places he's hidden wads of cash. One is, I think, a VHS cassette case of Caro's Book of Tells. It's a book initially, but you can get the video of it as well, where it demonstrates people doing exactly the kind of things you're talking about, touching their face when they're weak, looking at their cards, counting their chips, that kind of thing. And the other one was Super System, the foundational book for No Limit Hold'em Strategy by Doyle Brunson, right. Texas Dolly. And so I thought that was a really nice touch for him to use those two things and really have just even brief shots of those two foundational poker books, at least hold them poker books. You mentioned Doyle Brunson, and Mike quotes him a lot in the movie. Reminds me of the last game at the end. Mike puts KGB to a decision for all the chips right off the bat. Doesn't know what KGB has because the flop is not down yet. That's fucking gambling! He only has $10,000. He's done if KGB calls him and has a better hand than he does. Yep. It but is. he did rattle him, and that's the whole point. But that was a shot in the dark that that would work, especially against somebody as tough and as good at the game as Teddy KGB, who probably should have gone, by the way, to Vegas at some point if he's so good at this game. Why did he never try to go over there? Well, He'd probably that, do okay. If you're part of the Russian mob and involved in the KGB in any way, you're probably making more money doing that than you want to okay, yeah. waste your time in Vegas. Lay low as well. Don't bring attention to yourself. You're right. I mean, that's pure gambling. But that was the hand where he has pocket kings, the first hand of the game, right? Mike, when he shoves all in and... Puts KGB to the test. I, I think so. And so that's by the, the second best hand in Hold'em. Right, and I read hand. somewhere that when Matt Damon played in a real tournament, it may have been Doyle Brunson, but it was one of those famous actual poker names. Damon had pocket kings, but Brunson or whoever it was had pocket aces. It sucks, and it seems like you've just been set up for failure, but it happens. you got to stay with Cowboys, though. You have to. You can't fold. Mm. Now, I think if you're a cash game player, and, and by the way, I'm not. I'm more of a tournament guy. I don't really play much cash, and it's a different strategy. They were playing twenty-five fifty, so twenty-five dollar small blind, fifty dollar big blind. They each had ten thousand dollars. I think there's a really strong argument to be made for not putting two hundred blinds in the middle pre-flop with pocket kings because somebody could have aces, but mm. even if they have like an ace and an ace is on the flop, right. that's a huge gamble to take. But I mean, hey, that's not very. Or exciting. they could pull a flush. Making. On you, maybe your kings is the best hand you ever get, and they get a flush or a full house. It all depends on your risk tolerance. If you have pocket kings, you're going to be a huge favorite to win the hand once it's all said and done. But at the same time, do you want to see a flop and make sure there isn't an ace out there and mm. try to save yourself $5,000 that you haven't put in the middle? I don't know. Like I said, I could talk poker pedantry, but nobody <laughs> wants to listen to it. The one thing that really pissed me off about that was the first bet that Mike makes was to raise it to, what, 500 or 600? You're talking about the second game? The first play? hand. The first hand of the second game. Okay. That same hand you were talking about, the pocket kings, I raise, I re-raise, I go all in, and Teddy folds, right? Mike's first raise, $50 big blind. He raised a 500? Yeah. <laughs> He's trying to intimidate somebody who's unintimidatable, I guess. That, more than anything else, is a nonsensical move from a strategy perspective. Because, I'm a smart guy. Proving my point. Yeah, it, it, He's gambling. If you want to play for pots that big, play for bigger blinds. But otherwise, everything you do, you think about from the perspective of, is this going to make me money in the long run? And all Teddy KGB has to do is... If Mike does that as a bluff once, raises to 500 and Teddy re-raises him, and then Mike folds, he's just lost $500. That's 10 big blinds. You know how often that has to work from Mike's perspective in order for it to be profitable? Too much, Marion. <sighs> <laughs> so upset right now. We're talking again now about maybe KGB had aces. That's what he has in their first game that beats Mike as well. When Mike's so certain of what KGB has. 
I'm pretending like I'm pondering a big call. Yeah. And then he actually beats him because he has two aces in his hand. So, obviously, KGB doesn't have that in the last game, the first hand of the last game. He but he could have. I do not have <laughs> this flush. This movie has been compared by a lot of people, including Roger Ebert, to Rocky. Rocky has two big matches. He wins the first time we see him against Spida, who's in Rocky Balboa many years later, 30 years later. And he loses against Apollo at the end. Kingpin we covered last week or two weeks ago. Roy wins against Bigger in the first time when mm-hmm. they're both younger, and he loses the second time. So we're in the sync with those two, with Rocky and Kingpin. But Rounders is the opposite, where Mike loses and then later on wins, which is more of a sports movie cliche rather than the Rocky thing. Maybe that's one reason why people like Rocky so much, their love story and all that other thing. But Rocky has to lose, and then he wins by losing kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? This movie is the opposite, though, because Mike wins out in the end but loses the first time. Yeah, I always thought of it as a Rocky clone, but in that way, it's not at all. But I think you have to have Mike broken down in order to rise up at the end, though. It would never work for him to win immediately. You wouldn't root for him if he won initially. He wouldn't stay in New York. He would have been in Vegas. Yeah, he wouldn't even been there. There'd be no movie. It's an interesting contrast, though. You're right. I'd never really considered it from the perspective of contrasting it to these other Well, it's just because one of the great film critics of all time and the person that Bev and I have quoted so many times in our podcast, and I like, I've always liked, I've read his stuff so much. If you think about it, though, he's wrong in that very important way that Rocky's storyline and Rounders... They're not the same at all because the two big matches, and Mike plays a lot of cards in this, but the guy he plays cards against twice is the beginning of the end. And Rocky only has two boxing matches that matter. I think only two boxing matches, period, Yeah. in the course of that movie. And they are opposite, how they go down, winning and losing. Did he mean it more from just like an underdog perspective? Like, oh, that's surely what he meant, yeah. Yeah, okay, that of course I get. Mike's trying to pull off something that he Except Rock, realistically has no right to Rocky didn't off. really have that much talent, especially compared to Apollo Creed, and Mike has more talent than all these guys. Rocky in that movie is just... Is the, Apollo Creed. He's the brick hit house. He oh, just sorry. takes the punishment. <laughs> and Mike is Apollo Creed, actually. He's the most talented one of everybody and the smartest one of everybody. Yeah, exactly. So they play a lot of different types of poker in this movie, which I guess I realized the first time I saw it. He talks about it. Some of these games mean nothing to me. Yeah. The judges are playing stud, for example. Yeah, and the cop game where Worm and Mike get fucked up later, they're also playing stud. Let's talk about that. Because that's where, of course, Mike finally has it with Worm when he comes in and blows up by being a mechanic and getting caught. I mentioned this on Kingpin. It pissed me off the way that people that get hustled, the way they react to that, and they take Roy's hand off on the Bolo Shino machine. Or whatever <laughs> the Shino that Bolo? <laughs> well, not quite the same thing here with the cops because Worm was going to steal their money by cheating, and Mike, of course, would have beaten them legally and on the up and up if yeah. Worm had stayed out of it. But what bothered me is that when they found out what was going on, and they're really just suspecting it's possible that Worm wasn't cheating. We know he was, but they don't know. Again, they know he's cheating anyway. They don't know. They beat the shit of those two guys. I guess I get that. But they take the money they had when they came in there. Fuck you. That's not right. You're I, cops. I mean, Police I, brutality. I get what you're saying. And incidentally, it was a great moment when Mike says, you idiot. These aren't city workers. They're state workers or whatever it was when he realizes the cop game. The uh, stadies. <laughs> this character of the year before in Good Will Hunting would have said, the stadies. I'm oh, doing a bad impression of a Boston accent. That sounded more like Mo the bartender. <laughs> oh, Oklahoma. That was a good one. The difference, I think, between the Shino Ballo analogy is, okay, in Roy's shoes, you're sandbagging the match against the priest and you're trying to take their money, but you're playing the game straight up. You're just a better player and you're pretending not to be, right? That's the bowling match. Worm and Mike are unquestionably the two best poker players straight up there, but Worm's also manipulating the deck. It's not an even game. The guys never had a chance to beat Worm and Mike because of the manipulations that he was making the deck. 
So I was okay with it. Of them getting beaten up. Of them getting beaten up and them losing their money. I mean, but even the money they came in with. Yeah. What were they supposed to do? Here's your money back, boys. And do we change? We thank you, like in The Simpsons. Yeah. No. I mean, it's kind of the fear that Mike had the whole time is that Warren would do something stupid and cost them everything because he knew there's a code to these things too. We talked about those codes earlier. You don't walk into a cash game and try to game the system because you will lose everything. You just don't do it. If people can't trust that the game is on the up and up, people aren't going to play. Which is why KGB pays Mike at the end. Pay that man his money. Exactly. Because if they beat him up when Mike beat him, he beat me straight up. But I love Grandma's reaction. Throw in the chair, he's so pissed off. You're going to get paid, you dumb shit. You want to beat him up or even kill him so badly that you don't want to be paid. You're going to be able to beat somebody else up, you fucking hood. (laughs) (laughs) I think he just really had a hard-on for Worm. If Mike fails, then he gets to go after Worm as well, ultimately. Well, Worm better not go to New York, maybe ever, because I don't think Grandma's going to forget about this even in five years. Worm makes it sound like, a year or two, because he hides out in that school gym, apparently, from some guy who's (laughs) mad about some stupid shit. Never mind money from Russian mob people. Yeah, Worm is not the best at long-term planning, I think it's safe to say. It's great the way he tries to explain his worldview. I said I hated him by the end of the movie, essentially for the way he treated his friend more than anything else. But you kind of understand why he did it. You understand his compulsions. He's got that gambling compulsion. It goes beyond being a gambling addict. He's addicted to the danger of trying to do something illicit while gambling. Because he could win plenty of money like Mike usually tries to, straight up. But he doesn't want to do it that way. And that's the thing. You see, over the course of them trying to raise the money to pay back grandma, I think at that point they own 15 grand. They've got three days to do it, right? Mm-hmm. They find a bunch of these smaller games. They get about halfway there before the cop came. Granted, you've played pretty much straight those two plus days at that point, but you've made seven grand in two days playing straight. Mm-hmm. You've clearly got the skills to make quite a bit of money in a short period of time. Worm could do that if he really wanted to. But Worm wasn't playing any of those games. Worm was scouting them out, and he was not playing. They show him many times. All of the time... The long shot shows him flipping a card and catching it. Flipping a card like yeah, you would if you're hockey card shooting against the wall kind of thing. The boomerang card he's trick. He's putting yeah. at one point. And then, of course, he goes to the bowling alley, I supposedly, when the cop game happens. But he ends up getting found and goes in and ruins everything. The conversations that Mike and Worm have over the course of the movie, it always makes it sound like they're equals at the table. That yeah. the two of them are approximately as good at the game, playing it straight. Maybe he's not as good as Mike. Maybe Mike has become a better reader. It's almost a moot point. Worm would never play it straight. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, you're right. It's a moot point. He's got that adrenaline rush addiction, I think. And he probably learned some of these things in prison by playing, as he says, against the guards, the black guys, and the white guys, playing so many different types of people, any of whom could kick his ass, but he avoids that, luckily enough, through his whole prison sentence. But he's probably, knowing Worm, running the risk of getting killed or beat up at least every single day because he undoubtedly is doing the same things in there. But... Oh, he yeah. shows Mike right away how good he is with dealing cards and hiding sevens, hiding kings, hiding aces. Well, not sevens so much. But anyway, the point is that he's really good at being a mechanic. And these guys aren't good enough to know so because they're prisoners and guards. The first time we see him is in that prison game that he's playing. The day he gets out of prison, he's still playing cards mm-hmm. with his inmates. What are you doing there? Get out. You're processed. <laughs> and they call him out on it. Nobody is that lucky. And Norton's trying to defend himself kind of half-heartedly, saying, oh, what are you talking about? You won that hand. You won that hand. But of course, he's throwing the small hands and he's winning the big pots and that's how he's handling the game. So later on, when Mike picks Worm up, 
after, incidentally, Worm tosses all the cigarettes he mm-hmm. wins from the prisoners in the garbage on his way out. Yeah. So he doesn't care for petty. them. Petty. It's petty. He's just doing it for the thrill. Norton refused to smoke in the movie itself, which is probably why he threw the cigarettes away. Uh, but he smokes just as much as Brad Pitt does in Fight Club. So maybe it's when the movie means more to him. I'm sure he liked doing rounders with Matt Damon and various people involved in it. But when the movie means more to him, he probably is willing to do something that he wouldn't be otherwise. Which is one of the sense. frustrating things about Edward Norton. He has got himself blackballed effectively in this business. I don't know exactly why. I think because he's just a pain to work with. He's good, but he's not that good kind of thing. Mm. He wants to rewrite scripts. He probably could be the Hulk right now slash Bruce Banner instead of Mark Ruffalo. Because he was the Hulk in the new iteration when Kevin Feige did The Incredible Hulk. That was the same year they did Iron Man. But he's not. I think it's partly his own personality that lost him that job. It's almost like the actor is this character in that kind of way. Maybe that's why he had so much fun playing it. I could just be myself. Huh. And I don't mean to rip on Edward Norton because he's a really talented actor. And in this time frame, he and Damon were doing good movie after good movie. Norton had done Primal Fear that got him the Oscar nomination a few years before this. American History X this same right. year, which I right. watched not that long ago. Strong performance. Fight Club is a year after that. He was going from one success after another. And maybe it's a bit of an art imitating life thing here. One thing I just reminded me about art imitating life actors kind of stuff. Petrovsky, the Martin Landau character, smoker, drinker, poker player, mensch. Mensch. <laughs> he has a few quiet scenes with Mike about how you should got to do what you want to do. But his whole thing about being what you really are, I wonder if that's some kind of subtext for being an actor. It's almost like Martin Landau, and of course the dialogue was written for him, but Martin mm-hmm. Landau, this aged actor, saying to this young up-and-comer Matt Damon, you got to go for what you really want to do. You can't be what they tell you to be, your parents and whatnot. Although... It's something that his Jewish parents don't respect a son who becomes a New York lawyer. Yeah. But he had to be a, what do you call it? A, not a priest, a rabbi. but a rabbi. Yeah, yeah right. he was in rabbinical a priest. college by the sounds of it, and then he got a that's, change of heart. That's the jazz singer storyline, actually, too, although that is actually a performer versus being a rabbi, and this, it's a rabbi versus being a lawyer, but I think there's some kind of subtext with, I want to be an actor. You know what I'm saying? I thought that was actually a really cute point with the Martin Landau characters. I don't want to say anything that's insulting or anything like that, but of course... It's a cliche. It's a cliche, right? Yeah. The people that grow up in a Jewish family, you become a lawyer, you become a doctor, right? And that's... The way he plays the character is a cliche, though, too. That, too. But as far as secular professions go, that seems to be like the cliche Jewish profession. Mm-hmm. So for Martin Landau's family to say, lawyer, no, 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 mm-hmm. we don't approve of that, was a fun little tweaking of that okay, sort of stereotypical cliche, I thought. Maybe this is it. Maybe you finally connected the dots. We have Martin Landau to thank for Ed Norton now, 20, what, 22? What is this, 1990? This is a 20-year-old movie. 20, it was 1998. 1998. Yeah, okay, 20-year-old connection between Landau and Norton being blackballed. It just took <laughs> him that long to really ramp up his behavior, thanks to that advice. Blackballed's strong, but he really hasn't done that much other than working with Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson's a good director, but it's not like he's Spielberg or Scorsese or you know, any right. of the great directors, and I think it's because of Norton's mouth. It's it might unfortunate. Be. He has gone off the radar. There's no question about it. I can't remember the last time I saw a real contemporary movie with him in it. In he a, was in Birdman role. and that one Best Picture, but that was effectively was an independent Birdman? film. Yeah, He what got nominated role? for a supporting actor for that. He's one of the actors. Oh. Naomi Watts and him are two of the actors that are working right. with Michael Keaton in the right, right, play right. that they're doing. Forgot about that. Bev and I are going to cover that movie next February for Oscar month. It'll be the five year anniversary at that point. One thing yeah. I like about this movie an awful lot, we get a little bit technical here. The music. Love the jazzy score. I was reading years ago that Harvey Weinstein gave John Dahl, who says his name yet, the director, an awful hard time about the score he had. So I guess this jazzy score, that do 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 I really love that too, especially. Great score. But I guess Harvey insisted on that music. That's what I was reading anyway. And in this case, as he often was, despite the fact he's an awful person, a lot of the time Harvey was right. And the music in this movie is one of the things I've always liked about it so much. There's something about the music that's just sort of evocative of old timey card room, like a smoky, jazzy, smoky yeah. card room, mm-hmm. right? 
I don't know if it's at all what you would hear in 1920s Louisiana if you walked into a card room or anything, but that's what it brings to mind. If it had been 90s era music, though, it wouldn't have really fit the tone as well. So in this case, Harvey was probably right. John Dahl had done The Last Seduction four years before this, which is a pretty good movie. But he really has found his niche directing TV. And it's interesting because you would think that this movie, if not in 1999, 2000, 2001, after it had been out for a little while, people wouldn't really have been talking about it because nobody really saw it. But when poker got so big, whenever that was, they might have said, hey, wait a minute, the director of that movie, we got to get him. But no one really did. Or maybe he just liked to do TV more. But his TV resume is impressive. Really? And Dahl's writers, David Levine, Levine and Brian Cockleman, they wrote Ocean's 13, but more importantly, Runner Runner, which is also a cards movie with... Ben Affleck and I forget who the other guy is in that. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. Bad. It wasn't very good. It wasn't but it was, very good. So they know what they're talking about with cards movies. <laughs> you mentioned Dahl and the rise of poker and the fact that he never got much work on the big screen as a result of making the connection between him and cards. It's interesting the connection that cards and TV have to one another and their respective rises at the same time. We all call it No Limit Hold'em now, but No Limit Texas Hold'em as they refer to it in this movie. Is that not the right name for it? Texas Hold'em? It's just commonly known as Hold'em now or No Limit Hold'em. Okay. That's just because it became such a ubiquitous game. I mean, back, I guess, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, limit games were much more popular, so you had to refer to it as No Limit Something Something, and Texas Hold'em is a particular type of Hold'em. Initially, the World Series of Poker, which is what Mike goes to play, he goes to play the big main event, which is a $10,000 buy-in, and always was, which was always kind of interesting to me. Even when it started in 72, I think it was, or something like that, it was still $10,000 to buy in. Initially, they wanted to make it a seven-card stud game, because that was the most popular card game going, and it would remain the most popular card game going for another 10 or 15 years after the World Series main event began. But they ultimately settled on No Limit Hold'em because they wanted it to be a spectator event. They wanted it to ultimately be televised, which it did. It's become a huge television event every year, too. It exploded in 2003 when Chris Moneymaker won. is because of that ESPN televised event where they could hold him up and say, look, this is like an every man that qualified online for... I think he qualified for 200 bucks. That guy, right, yeah. And he won $2.5 million, and that could be you, Ryan, right? So even back in the mid-'70s, People had the forethought to say, let's choose a game that is much more easily watched, much more easily understood. You only have to think about the two cards in front of you and the five on the board and the betting. There's no restrictions. You do what you want. That's a lot of forethought to have at that time, right? When television was a thing, but it wasn't the same as it is today, obviously. They talked about Doyle Brunson, Texas Dolly, saying that to him, No Limit Hold'em is the most pure form of poker. I don't know if I agree with that. What do you think it is? I don't know what it would be, honestly. What I, do you like to play the most? What's your favorite game? I like stud games. These days, I do like Do you guys mix games. it up a year when you play? It was every Tuesday yeah. you play? Yeah, we do. We mix it up quite a lot. There's this certain set of considerations, I guess, that go into limit games, into pot limit games, and into stud or Omaha-based games that you don't have with no limit. People can't just say, I don't want to think about this hand, so I'm all in. There's a lot more strategy that goes bet to bet. I kind of okay. like that more. So a little bit more about Teddy KGB, because he is the best character in the whole film. He doesn't actually swear. He's always saying, Facking. Facking. Chick. Chick. So it wouldn't be that hard to put this movie on TV with his lines of dialogue, because you could just let him say, Facking. That's not swearing. It's like fracking. Frack. On, what was that? Battlestar Galactica. Is that what it was? Yeah. So the last hand. You better answer this for me. You're the card player. I was reading this. I never heard this until when I was looking at the IMDb trivia when I watched the movie last week. Did Mike muck on the last hand, because he didn't actually declare he was calling... I flop the nuts straight. He pushes his chips a little bit. He barely touches them, but that's supposed to count as covering Teddy's bet. 
yeah. Teddy doesn't have as much money, so anyway, it's covered in that sense. It's not like Damon doesn't have the money to put in there, but did he muck? No, he didn't muck. Okay. He tabled his hand. Primary rule number one in poker is if you table your hand, if you put them face up so that the dealer can see them. In this case, it's a one-on-one game. They're dealing themselves. And incidentally, Ryan, I would never play a cash game with anybody that is dealing to themselves. Ever. Because you might be cheating? I never knew how easy it was to deal off the bottom of the deck until I tried to learn how to do it. It's so easy. Really? Never do that. Okay. In this case, I mean, it's a poker club, quote-unquote, and there's a certain expectation that they're going to be honorable with the payouts, so like, whatever. And KGB is? And they proved to do. Yeah, yeah. so... Yeah, he turns his hand up. You can see the eight and the nine. You can see the board. In fact, Teddy KGB leans over incredulously and looks and says, oh, what? Check, check, check. You check. You trap me kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? So he didn't muck his hand at all. He turned it up. The number one thing that every movie and TV show will fuck up without fail is when people say things like, I'm all in, and then they just dump a mountain of chips, just push it all into the middle mm -hmm. of the pot. You never, ever, ever do that because how the hell is somebody supposed to count that bet and figure out how much money you actually have when you've just not just toppled them over, but pushed them into the middle so they're all now mixed in with the bets that have existed right. already. And all Mike had to do was just cover what KGB put in there, which was not as much as what Mike had. Right. The first game that KGB and Mike play, Mike actually does it. He goes, KGB, I'm all in, and he's kind of like topples it yeah. forward. And that kind of irritated me, but they both sat down with 30000 each. KGB had Mike covered. He knew that, so he didn't really have to count it out. That first game, there are other people playing, though. They show them playing other people at first, and later on, it's just the two of them. It's the right. last game where it's heads up. Right, but by the time when Mike pissed me off with his chip dumping, they were at heads up. Well, true. Although, the you're right. The so it would have been more than just the 30,000. Absolutely, yeah. that's true. Mm -hmm. But at the end, it's funny because Mike actually calls out KGB... For splashing, for the, splashing pot. the pot. right? Well, like, that's why, so you can't count the chips. Not just because it's a mess. If I say, Ryan, I'm going to bet 500, and then I dump the 500 into the pot rather than in front of me, how do you know that I just put 500 chips? In? Maybe I said I bet 500. Could have held but, one back. But I held 300. So I'm mm. cheating you a little bit, right? So, okay, fair. Yeah. But then KGB has that great line, it's my club and I'll splash the pot whenever, whenever I the fuck I want. He says, fuck. And then <laughs> slowly splashes every other bet. When I talk about rounders not being a perfect poker movie as far as how it displays what it does great is that kind of thing and some of the home games that they display they don't play it perfectly but they'll periodically call out what people are doing wrong like mm. splashing the pot it's really very intelligently done i like in that last scene maybe it's in the first time they play each other but certainly the last time the big goon behind kgb fiddling with his pinky ring it's like he's brandishing it and there's a lot of pinky rings in this movie including on kgb himself it's a good look, Ryan. Mine, I've been thinking about brandishing one myself. <laughs> My next show was going to be about pinky rings, but I couldn't find an angle on that, so I didn't go that way. You talked about the cookie tell, and I thought one of the great moments in this movie was when Mike asks KGB, would you lose your appetite? I think that's the line, right? Not so, hungry? You're not hungry anymore or something? You slowly see the light dawn behind KGB's eyes. He throws away his... And it's great, not just because of that reaction out of Malkovich, but as an audience member, my first reaction, my gut reaction is like, you idiot, why did you call out his tell? When you have that tell, mm. why didn't you use it? But then Mike immediately follows up yeah. with that comment. And the like, voiceover, yeah. Yeah, most of the time, I would just let him keep on munching away to his heart's content, but I got to bust him quick. So he's trying to get under his skin, and he does. But it's just such a beautifully acted and intelligently written yeah. sequence there, that one to the next to the next to the next. And for those online who criticized the cookie tell, or that Mike doesn't notice it sooner, and those kinds of issues with these two players, or with other games in the movie for that matter, the yeah. Atlantic City games. The one thing that needs to be remembered is this movie is supposed to be out there for mass audiences. It didn't succeed, but it was supposed to succeed. That's true. With Matt Damon especially, and Edward Norton. 
The movie was supposed to be a big hit, but you want it so people can understand. You already have dialogue that's really obtuse that I still don't get in some cases. So you got to have it so people can get it too. Sometimes movies telegraph things so you can answer the fucking question. Bev and I talked about this a few weeks ago on The Birds. Why did she go up to the attic at the end of the movie? Because the movie needs to go that way. Sometimes you have to do things that don't make any sense so the audience can have an ending or have this or that work out. So I guess that's one reason why you have the tells in this movie that are so blatantly obviously telegraphed for the backseat of the theater. Anybody can see it from anywhere. I think that's a really good point. Now that you mentioned that, the fact that they actually flashed Caro's books of tells at the beginning of the movie, you know, I wonder if that's a little tongue-in-cheek way of the writers of the movie or the director saying, listen, we know what tells are, we understand how subtle they can be, so take it easy on us because when KGB's tell is so obvious down the line, it's not because we don't understand what a tell actually looks like necessarily, but for exactly the reason you cite, if the audience member didn't really understand it, maybe after Mike says it and KGB throws the cookies, you get it, it clicks, but it's more entertaining as the audience member when you say, oh, I see what it is, and you wonder, is Mike going to find it? Is Mike going to see it as well? Is he going to use it against KGB? So you're right, the audience member being able to pick up on it as quickly as possible, I think really adds an element to it. One last thing I want to ask you about playing the game itself. Do you think you could have the courage, the Johnny Chan-esque courage to lay in there and try to draw the guy in when you have the nuts, the straight right off the bat like that? Yeah. Do you see that happen much when you play? With a full house or a flush or a straight? It kind of depends on the player you're playing against. If your opponent is supposed to be super aggressive, and I guess Teddy is supposed to be super aggressive, mm-hmm. then yeah, you're best off just to check, check, check. Especially no checks, yeah. the line at the end, that ace could not have helped. It hurts. And you like, can't believe. You can't believe. Get felt. What the fuck's that next word? You got felted? Sounds like he says you can't believe got felt. Can't believe got felt. That's what yeah. it sounds like he's saying to me. Maybe, but that accent, anyway. who the hell knows? But yeah, I mean... <laughs> I can totally see somebody checking and checking and checking just think this guy's going to punt it in because the theory is, especially at the end of it all, if Teddy has nothing and Mike has done check call, check call, and then at the very end he goes all in, what is Teddy going to do? He's going to fold. But Mike is in a hurry. Mike needs to hope that Teddy's just going to blast off and put it all in the middle so that he can get out of there before morning. So it makes perfect sense. You see it all the time, and it's all very opponent-dependent, I guess. And the reverse is true because in the first game, KGB's got the better hand, but Mike doesn't know it. And it's the reverse at the end, where Mike's got the better hand. Exactly. KGB doesn't know it. So he's betting to buy the pot effectively. Plus, KGB's got less money than Mike does at that point, so he's trying to stay alive. I've played that way. You feel like, I'm going to be aggressive even though I have fucking rags right now, because if I can win this one hand by outplaying the guy, then I can stay alive when I have a good hand. Plus, he's not the one that needs to get money to save his life. KGB can afford to lose, I guess it must be $20,000 or whatever it was, because it was 10000 but then they bet more on. More. You know, that's a good question, though. I guess Mike owed KGB... It was 15, I think it was. 15, yeah. Mike wins $60,000 that night, and he has to pay back Petrovsky, he has to pay the Chesterfield, and, of course, the debt to KGB and Grandma. Then he's back to about $30,000 again. But specifically, I was thinking about Grandma and Teddy being, like, the existential threats to Mike, Mm -hmm. and they'll beat the ever-loving shit of him if they don't pay up. Kill him. Teddy had said, at least before he busted the first go-around, they said, okay, we're sitting down, we're playing mano a mano, and we're not leaving until somebody has Has it it all. Has it all. If they had still been playing, even if Teddy was down to, like, 500 chips and Mike had 59,000 and change at that point, would he have been able to cash that out? If we hit 8 a.m. the next morning, like... Would <laughs> the he... alarm goes off. Yeah, and, and Grandma's there with the brass Ship knuckles. And, well, here, take 15... No, no, that doesn't belong to you until you've taken it all. So now we're going to beat the ever-living hell out of you because you haven't paid us back. Knowing the way KGB acts about paying that man his money, I don't think he would have let that happen. They would have let him play out the game. Yeah, I think he also would have said, I'm going to beat this kid because I can beat this kid. I guess that's right. 
Teddy could have just like sat back and basically folded his way to 8 a.m. the next morning if uh, that was a strategy. But which is dumb too because let this guy be under your banner as a poker player. You can make so much money off of him. That's what Kanish tries to do earlier in the film. Give I'll stake in and whatever. Yeah, I'll take a percentage. Take half your winnings, and yeah. he would have made a nice little living out of that. So I guess that's it, except for the big question. Can you score at this movie? I think we've got some good answers here. Damon's Frosted Tips and Norton's Slick Assholery might not put you in the mood. Well, the Frosted Tips might. But then there's the cuteness of Gretchen Maul and the eye-poppingness of Famke Johnson. It's inspiring how much this babe, Johnson, wants to bone-mad Damon. I could stay. How do you resist her, man? What the hell? So maybe he could fuck his way out of debt to the Chesterfield at the very least. And that whole thought pattern makes me think that, yeah, the movie's pretty sexy. And that music, do 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 It's a sexy jazz ditty. Mm-hmm. And now you're giving Damon a lot of credit for some sexual prowess. If you think he could bang his way out of, what was it, 70s? There's a line in the beginning of the film when he comes home and he says, I'll be quick with Joe. We both know that's not true. Oh, I see. say he's yeah. both got a great dick and he lasts a long time. All right, okay, so maybe. At least take a chunk out of the dead at the very least, yeah. is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I also thought you were going to say like the raw, eye-popping sexuality of John Malkovich, so I'm a little disappointed in you there, right? He wasn't having me hanging around. I was hey, stiff as a board. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> hanging around. <laughs> Crocodile blood. No, it's eh? all about Famke. I agree. It's a, for it's the a... ladies and the gay fellows, it's about Matt, probably. With the exception of the scenes of Grandma and his weird kimono silk robe thing. Yeah. Michael Raspoli is definitely the only real true villain in this movie because yeah. KGB may be a mobster, but he's otherwise an honorable guy. He's and got a code, yeah. And yeah, So it's really just the guy who's kicking the dog. Yeah. Fucking asshole. Michael Raspoli was a Sopranos veteran as well. And a pimp is what he seems to be. And a dumbass because he gets his money and yet he wants to beat up on Mike. Yeah, he's really the most unlikable guy in the whole thing. Easily, by a mile. More so than even Worm, and Worm is certainly on the list of unlikability, but he's played so well that it's hard to not like him. Until maybe the very end, like you said. Alright, great movie. I love seeing it. I'll probably watch it again within the next year or so. Yeah, I think we're simpatico on that. Mm-hmm. Despite the flaws, it's a lot of fun. I always wonder about this. When we talk about movies we really like, they're invariably very flawed, right? And I think... Every movie's flawed. As we've gone through this, there's a few things I've realized. One, the movies that are the most fun to talk about... At least for our purposes. Are the bad ones? Are the bad ones, <laughs> but also the good ones with flaws, or at least the good ones with something really interesting to say. The ones that are really hard to talk about are the comedies that succeed, because then they're just citing lines. Or the movies that just don't have an interesting message, or don't have those grievous flaws in them. They're just there. They're just there. So the okay. movies that I think I really enjoy watching, it's one of the reasons I really do enjoy watching this, is because it has flaws, but it has some interesting things to say. It depicts some interesting relationships. When you're all said and done, it's a lot of fun to root for the underdog, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's and, got a lot going on. And it's a movie that I think, at least indirectly, inspired a pretty big thing on television for maybe even now, but certainly for a long time, and that is watching people play Hold'em. I think this movie directly started to influence people to think a little bit more about poker, and then online poker came along, and then televised mm-hmm. poker became a bigger thing, and then Moneymaker wins, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. To the extent where Matt Damon's character talks about a million dollars to the winner of the World Series in 1998. How much is it now? It varies year to year. The biggest one in history was $12 million. Wow. The biggest World Series of a poker main event for the winner was $12 million. And but that it's was only been two... 20 years, though. It's not like it's been 50. Well, that was 2006. Oh, really? So it's not been as big in the last 12 it's years. usually about 8 to $10 million. Still pretty big compared to the $1 million in 98. It shows how huge it became. And like you said, in no small part due to this movie, I think. Right. And the real message is, don't be a lawyer, be a gambler. And he is a gambler. <laughs> the one thing I like to think we do here, Ryan, it's dispense good life advice and wholesome messaging. So, <laughs> two thumbs up on that one. Do not be a lawyer. <laughs> All right, in two weeks, we'll unsnap our skate guards and get back onto the ice as we cover our second hockey movie.
Goon, uh, yeah. which is on Netflix, and let's hope it stays there long enough for us to watch it. All right, you're not on Twitter, right? <laughs> not yet. Why would that change? I Why am on Twitter, at MovieFiend51. Definitely tweet me. I'm also TopNinerProject.com. Well, my website, our website, Bev and I. All the podcasts are on there. Almost 280 now in total I've been involved in. With Bev, with you, Top Runner Project, Next Runner Project, Nile Playing, all the banners that I have or we have. Getting not too far away from 300. What are you going to do for the 300th episode? I don't know yet. That'll be sometime next year. That will be a combined episode, I suppose. You sit in with us, with Bev and I. Ooh, uh, interesting. Maybe one day we'll all cram around the <laughs> snowball microphone. <laughs> Maybe it'll be a live podcast of Rock Band or something. Ooh, people will not want to hear that, I don't think. Will not <laughs> your, your listenership will just go off a cliff the if second that already. episode comes <laughs> We were accused of being too inside baseball with a baseball movie, Major League, not that long ago. We were even more so today, Yeah, which I think is fine. But I knew I was going to run into that a little bit with this episode, and it's kind of hard to avoid with this movie. I have to apologize for that. But... I don't think you should, because the movie itself, as I said before, uses lingo that's hard to understand no matter how many times you see the movie, unless you know what these people are talking about. Why can't we do the same thing? From one fish to a donkey, Ryan, I agree with you. Let's stop hanging around. And take her easy, dudes. Take her down. I know that you will. 